And that's how he died, with an arse filled with eels. We turn now to a special report, where we take a look at some people who got it right, only to go on to get it wrong. Josh, you're our special correspondent on this matter. Who are tonight's target? Uh, well, Em, we're looking at the hosts of the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, in episode 28. Named after those missing pages of the 9-11 report. Yes, and how often they got it right, but turned out to get it very wrong when it comes to David Icke. Wasn't he a guest on their podcast? Yes, he was, which makes the era we're highlighting tonight so egregious. This concerns the Jimmy Savile affair, correct? Does. In episode 28, Josh and Em gave Ike credit for at least talking about Savile before it came out in the broader media that Savile wasn't just a pedophile, but also had a thing for corpses. But as our special report shows, there's no evidence Ike ever mentioned Savile at all prior to 2011. So Josh and Em dropped the ball on this? Mm, very much so. And the consequences of this heinous act of erroneous podcasting? Um, nothing. It's a podcast, who cares? Well, to quote the mayor of Auckland, they sound like drongos. Next up, a new episode of Drew's Views, where Drew asks whether Josh really did claim there's no caffeine black market. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, featuring Josh Addison and M. Dentith. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy in Auckland, New Zealand. I am Josh Edison and sitting right next to me, so close I'm effectively wearing them, it's Dr. M. R. X. Dentist. It's true, I am the latest in fashion couture. Well, well you always have been, really, if we're, if we're being honest. Which we're not. No, yeah. Well, that, that, yeah, that, 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 uh, that might come into this episode a little bit, perhaps, as well. We're doing, we're doing another Back to the Conspiracy. We're going back. Back to all the way back. Back. Back and to the left? Back to life. Back to reality. Back to November of 2014. That's, 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 that's a long time ago. almost nine years ago. I believe some people listening to this podcast weren't even born then. I assume. No, no. And I suppose before we actually say what we talked about... In November 2014, episode 28, uh, and 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 then start talking about it again. We should play a little little chime, a little jingle, thing, make it official. Yeah, yeah. Have 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 a bit of a dance along. Mm. Well, you're welcome to. Well, you can just listeners can just imagine that you're just boogieing along mm. after I play the sting. Buckle up, we're going back to the conspiracy. Now that is what I call ass movement. And I am notorious for booging along, boogieing along with things. So, so, episode so, 28. So. Episode November, 28. November of 2014. Was a, da the, a dark stain on this podcast. Well, it, it, it had its moments. So the point is, this was an episode we decided to go with the theme of conspiracy theorists who, who, who got it right with one thing. But and, then went on mm. to... Get it wrong with so many other things. So it's sort of, I mean, a little bit of a case of the a stop clock being right twice a day. Although I think we called the episode a stopped clock. We did, which I thought was a gratuitously sexual pun and didn't need to be there at all. But it's back, so what can you do? A little, a little bit, um, it reminds look, look, me a little the, bit of the... Just because the... I'm talking about spigots doesn't mean it has to be sexual. I, if you say so. I mean, bullcocks are an actual plumbing thing. Yeah, no, that's true. Yep, no, they're uh, they're copious. Although spigot, spigot does sound like it should be a, a dirty word. Guess if Josh 
You are such a spigot. Got it right in the spigot. Yeah. Uh, but no, so apart from that, apart from the, 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 the stop clock being right thingy, it reminds a little bit of the, um, the old Mel Gibson conspiracy theory film from oh, back in the 90s, yeah. which I have to confess, for someone who, who has been doing a conspiracy theory-related podcast for nine years almost, uh, I've never seen the movie Conspiracy Theory. And I, I don't feel a great loss. I mean, it's a Mel, it's, it's a Mel Gibson joint, and for that reason, well, you don't yes. need to revisit it or watch it. It's the reason why I'm not going to watch The Continental. Mm. I was seeing that. Yeah, he's, hmm. the, he's the main character in The Continental. Did not know that. Yeah, um, and the producers are already getting stick for, so, so why employ Mel Gibson? And they go, oh, well, you know, he's done some things in the past, but, you know, he's a really good actor. And people, yeah, he has done some things in the past, such as being a virulent anti-Semite. Mm. But the point is... That you um, haven't watched Conspiracy that, Theory. Well, I haven't watched that, but I do know that the whole point is that he plays a massive conspiracy theorist, but it turns out he's right about one of them and therefore gets targeted by Patrick Stewart? Yes. Yeah, Patrick Stewart. Yes. Anyway, so that's what we're talking about. With a very life. bad American accent. Oh, does he? Oh, yeah. God, I've never seen him try an American accent. I, don't, I really don't want to. No. Good. no so, I mean, there's two reasons why you should watch mm. that film. Okay, so so we talked about a few people. Now, the first one, the first one we talked about was a local example um, of of local journalist Ian Wishart. Uh, now, in more recent times, he has been the publisher of Investigate magazine. Is that still going? I actually meant to go and check. Yeah, because we've because the last time I checked, it was still going. And I think the last time I checked, and I mentioned it on the podcast, Investigate was doing. And investigate him, investigate her flip magazine concept. So Investigate Magazine is a magazine which traffics in right-wing political commentary and right-wing conspiracy theories about why this country is going so badly under the socialist governments of both National and Labour. Plus a little bit of, uh, of young racism. Earth creationism. Oh, yeah, yeah, racism. Um, vitamin C cures cancer, I think there's a bit of that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... The last time I checked, Investigate had worked out that both men and women read Investigate. But they hadn't worked out that the 1950s and 60s had passed us by. Oh. Because Investigate was published in a flip format. So the first half is all for men. So it has conspiracy theories for men. It has advertising for men. It has boats for men. And then you turn the magazine upside down and around. And the second half of the magazine, which has its own separate cover, is Investigate Her. And it's the same stories, basically, but with a lot more bridal advertising going on. Mm. It's, on one level, delightfully quaint, or on another level, disturbingly sexist. Well, I, I'm just, just looking them up now. Apparently they ceased print publication in 2015 and announced that it would become a solely online publication. The, rad the radical redesign into a his, her form, but it's, the whole thing is talking in past tense, so possibly they're not going anymore. But the point is, for the purposes of this episode, the point is that while that is what Investigate became and what Ian Wishart's main, main output became, he, he was a noted uh, legitimate, I guess, journalist in New Zealand for quite some time. In, in, in print and uh, Well, no, so he was mostly television. a TV journalist. He became mm. a print journalist after the Wine Box Inquiry. Yes, the Wine Box Inquiry. So this is the thing. 
this this was Ian Wishart's big story, which was which was real. It was yeah. an actual yeah. an actual conspiratorial well, tongue, well, conspiratorial-ish thing. Yeah, I mean, as we'll get to the story of the wine box, both sides claim victory as to whether there was a conspiracy or not. Well, yes. Uh, so this was a, a, a political story in the early 90s involving claims of fraud and uh, or claims, of, claims of corruption yeah. and tax evasion. within the serious fraud yeah. office, as I recall. Uh, and and also inland, inland revenue. So the story goes a bit like this. In 1992, Winston Peters, who was formerly an MP for the National Party, goes on to found New Zealand First, but in 1992 he's been jettisoned from National, is having an independent parliamentary career and talking about forming his own party. And he claims in the House of Parliament that New Zealand rich listers are using the Cook Islands as a kind of tax haven or shelter for their New Zealand income. And that Inland Revenue Department and the Serious Fraud Office both know about it, are facilitating it, and are also covering up this tax evasion slash sheltering. And this story becomes big enough news that various journalists around the country start to look into it. And Ian Wishart, who was a reporter who worked for Frontline, which was a current affairs show on TV3, he's asked to compile a report on it. And he comes into possession of the titular wine box, a, a box that once upon a time contained bottles of wine, which contained within it now a variety of different documents belonging, I believe, to Citibank and other related entities, which seemed to indicate there were some very dodgy deals going on by rich listers using the Cook Islands as a tax base. Now, he starts working on this report for TV3's Frontline. He eventually gets jettisoned from Frontline for basically being a dog with a bone and spending all of his time on this report, which the producers don't think is going to go anywhere. He leaves TV3 and joins TVNZ, the other rival commercial broadcaster in this country, and continues work on that report. In 1993, he's about to produce the report and play it on whatever the current affairs program of the day was back in 1993, which was probably 60 Minutes, but possibly not, and the broadcast gets shelved. And Wishart claims it gets shelved because of political interference. He has an explosive story that's going to show that there's wide-scale corruption in the New Zealand bureaucracy, and the government has basically stepped in and told the producers not to play the broadcast. The fact they don't play the broadcast becomes news itself, and the public demands to see the documentary they're not allowed to see. So eventually, in 1994, the broadcast is shown, and this leads to a parliamentary commission to investigate the claims of corruption and tax evasion by rich listers. And the short version of it is the parliamentary inquiry seems to find that nothing wrong happened. But when, they, when that finding was appealed, the judge who looked at the commission report went, it's kind of interesting that you didn't find any wrongdoing because the transactions which were fraudulent you ruled as being out of bounds of the inquiry. The transactions you did look into, you're quite right. There's nothing wrong there. 
And this finding has allowed both sides to go, well, look, we're vindicated. Ian Wishart has gone, well, look, they didn't look at the actual evidence of fraudulent transactions, so that shows I'm right. And the rich listers are going, but they investigated the transactions and the judge said they were right. Nothing wrong happened there. So technically, legally, nothing bad happened. But also legally, the findings of the report are questionable. Yes. So, it, yeah, n n never had a 100% conclusive ending. But it uh, did launch the career of one Winston Peters. It sure did, yes. He was the guy who brought it all. But did did um, did odd things to the career of one Ian Wishart. Yeah, so the reason why we talked about this in episode 28 is that Wishart does seem to have been right. There was something really dodgy going on. Maybe it wasn't quite as explosive a story as Wishart made it out to be. But it's fairly clear that rich listers were doing things to basically shelter their income in the Cook Islands, which is not technically an overseas jurisdiction, given it's part of the Dominion of New Zealand. And indeed, Parliament changed the laws after the inquiry to stop the kind of things that Ian Wishart was concerned were happening in the first place. Wishart then takes this, well, I was right about this, and then launches an entire career via Investigate magazine as a print journalist investigating all of the other dodgy deals. Josh, what exciting topics has Ian Wishart exposed in the years subsequent? Well, a whole lot of once, um, once the Labour government un under Helen Clark came in, there was a hell of a lot of, of, of anti-Clark stuff, in particular around the idea that she was a secret lesbian and that the country was being run by a secret cabal of lesbians. There was a bit of scientific stuff, like we said, a bit of, um, bit of uh, intelligent design stuff, a bit of vitamin C stuff, uh, a bit of, bit, bit of, bit of what was then global warming conspiracy theory stuff. All of which were written down in books, because mm. Ian Wishart loves to write a book. And there was a period of time when I was working on my PhD where I read all of the books that he wrote. And I remember reading once a comment on Wishart, and this was before his spiral into the publisher of Investigate magazine, but he was talking about starting a magazine. And one of his former producers went, look, Wishart's a great investigative journalist and a terrible prose writer, so I wish him the best of luck. And his prose writing has not got any better. Oh dear. Yeah, so that, that, that was our first case in the, in, in back in old episode 28 of a person who was very definitely right about a thing and, and did for a long time trade on the fact that they were very much right about a thing in order to then write about a bunch of other stuff. Which... Yeah, and the thing is, his investigations into anthropogenic global warming or global heating as we meant to call it today his discussion about how helen clark's actually secretly a lesbian and is running the country as part of a lesbian cabal his look into the health benefits of vitamin c which apparently can cure everything mm -hmm. vitamin c was the urine of today so people who claim that urine cures everything they, and they're playing from the same playbook that the vitamin C is the universal panacea. And his arguments for intelligence design versus evolution by natural selection are just very, very badly argued. Yes. And his arguments essentially are, my gut tells me 
that this really complicated theory, such as evolution by natural selection, or the idea that actually different illnesses need to be treated in different ways, my gut tells me that's too complicated an answer and I don't understand it. Therefore, I was, my gut was right about the wine box. My gut must be right about vitamin C, intelligent design and the like. My gut tells me that these theories are true. Mm. And that's basically the sum total of the way that he argues. But Josh, the real story here is the film Spooked. I have not seen the film Spooked. I know it exists. Uh, directed by, by Jeff Murphy, Jeff Murphy a, a well-regarded New Zealand director, and who's directed Hollywood films and what have you. Uh, starring Cliff Curtis. A well-regarded a well New Zealand actor. actor. Who has gone on to star as... He was, he was the guy who was referred to as generically ethnic, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. yeah. Given that the, the, he has the skin tone of a local Maori man, which is close enough to play someone Hispanic or place... You know, he's... he's when, um, when, when Hollywood needed a generically brown person... Uh, Cliff he, Curtis was one of the people they guy. would call upon. Yeah. No, so the movie. So have you seen the movie? I have. So it played at one of the 24-hour movie marathons at Timpson Rand. Uh. And I don't believe it had much of a theatrical release in this country. And given the film is resolutely New Zealand, I doubt it had much mm. of a theatrical release elsewhere. So Spooked is based upon Ian Wishart's first book, The Paradise Conspiracy. And the Paradise Conspiracy details his investigation of the wine box inquiry. It's actually part of a loose trilogy of books that Ian Wishart wrote about the wine box inquiry and the aftermath. And one of the stories in the Paradise Conspiracy deals with the accidental death of Paul White. So Paul White was a second-hand computer dealer who received a computer one day that contained within it Citibank banking records. And the claim was these banking records were part of the fraudulent transactions being made by rich listers. Paul White, as I say, died in a car accident. Ian Wishart has always maintained that this was a assassination. It wasn't an accident. Paul White was worried about his life. He then dies in a car accident. Wishart claims it's actually very easy to fake car accident. Who was the person with the Clinton emails who also died in a car accident? Everyone assumes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, his, I, I yeah. can't remember the name. Yeah, yeah. It was really big two election cycles ago. Yeah. And now we've forgotten who he is. Mm. And essentially, the death of Paul White is the same playbook. And so spooked is based upon that single chapter in The Paradise Conspiracy and is a dramatization of the life of Paul White, except he's now called Mort Whitman, I, assuming because the family of Paul White probably didn't want to see a dramatization of their family member's death, which was their fairly sure was a car accident, being put forward as a government conspiracy. Mm. Yes, I can imagine. Weird film. Mm. Weird film. Very well. As a, it's not based on the book, The Paradise Conspiracy. It's based upon one chapter in the book, The Paradise Conspiracy. And it takes a lot of liberties with that chapter. A lot of liberties. Well, yes, taking a lot of liberties seems to be something of a theme. So perhaps we should move on to the next person we talked about. 
back in November of 2014, which was, of course, David Icke. Now, we don't, I'm assuming, need to tell you, give you much of an introduction of, of David Icke. He's a, a, a former professional footballer. Former and that's professional all, footballer, all, all you need to know. <laughs> former guest of this podcast. And a great believer in the healing power of crystals. Mm. And an anti-Semite. Um, yeah, well, yeah, there's a bit of that too. Uh, so, so the thing about David Icke, now we all know David Icke says a lot of stuff and in the past has said, um, what, said, said stuff that seemed to be at, at the very least a bit different and I've, we've said more a recently, we've said like more that, recently that um, uh, I, I, I personally find it depressing the fact that he just seems to be another right wing grifter now just doing all the same talking points as all the rest of them whereas at least he used to do his own thing but um, the, th so the, the reason why we spoke about him in this episode is as we said right up the top because of the Jimmy Savile thing and David Icke had once once Jimmy Savile died and all the, all the stuff came out about all the horrible things he was up to in life um, David Icke proclaimed loudly that, look, see, I'd always been telling people about David Icke and I was right uh, about David Icke. He'd be, had been telling people many things about David Icke. I'd always been telling people things about Jimmy Savile and I was right. And, and, so the, and, and then would use that as, as, as ammunition for, you know, I was right about Jimmy Savile, so you should listen to me when I'm talking about the royal family and all, all of the other, other evil family, some of whom happen to be Jews, but it's got nothing to do with it, according to David I mean, they're alien shape, reptilian alien shapeshifters mm, who just happen to be Jewish. That's the real problem, yeah. And it just happens that all the alien shapeshifting lizards are Jewish. Mm. So just because I hate alien shapeshifting reptiles, Josh, doesn't mean I hate Jewish people. Obviously. It just happens to be that all of the alien reptilian shapeshifters are Jewish. Mm. But it's not actually his anti-Semitism that we want to knock him for today, because, yes, yeah, so, so at the time we were like, right, yes, he did say that. Now, I thought, I'm pretty sure at the time we said maybe he can't take that much credit, because the whole thing about the Jimmy Savile affair was that it was kind of this weird open secret that these rumours about the dodgy things he'd been getting up to had been around for a long time. And it was just a fact that he, he was, for some reason, untouchable, that nobody wanted to investigate him. And so it, it didn't come out, until, uh, not helped by Britain's notorious libel laws. But um, so, so I'm sure it's, I'm quite sure that David Icke knew about this stuff earlier on, because lots of people did know. And he worked for the, B he worked for the BBC. So after his football career ended due to injury, he became a sports reporter and a very well-regarded sports reporter at the BBC. So our theory was, look, he probably knew about it because it was, as you said, an open secret in the halls of the BBC. And thus he probably had access to that information. So there would be a good reason as to why he was right about Savile. Everyone else knew as well. Mm. But the thing is, now who was it who brought this to our attention? That is a really good question. Probably something we should have looked up specifically for this episode. But the, the, thing but, is, the name has just gone right mm, through my head. But it was pointed out some time after this that uh, if you go back and look through all of, all of David Icke's works, you can't actually find him talking about Jimmy Savile any time pre-Jimmy Savile's death. So I'm sure, like, like I say, I'm sure he probably did talk about it to people, but he never put it down anywhere. He never went on the record, as it were, with his talk about Jimmy Savile. So, so that actually seems to be more a, a, bit, a bit of, um, seems to be very self-serving of him, I guess, just in 
trying to say, look, I was right about Savile, so I'm right about everything else, because uh, it, it, it suits him, suits his rhetorical purposes, but doesn't actually seem to be 100% the truth. Now, and there's a similarity here with Alex Jones and Jeffrey Epstein. So Alex Jones has done the Savile thing. He said, look, when Epstein got arrested the second time, he went, oh, I've been talking about Epstein for ages. I've always been talking about Epstein. I've been talking about the, how the pedophiles and the democratic system have been running the system. You know, I've been talking about Epstein forever. And people have gone back in Alex Jones's broadcasts and gone, well, if you were talking about Epstein, you weren't talking about it on your broadcasts because you only start talking about Epstein after he's arrested. Not beforehand, only after everyone else knows. And he's backported, oh, but I've always talked about this. But it turns out, no, there's no recording of Alex Jones mentioning Epstein as a pedophile or a groomer. There's the occasional reference to Epstein in just general broadcasts, but never as a kind of salacious crumb of, I'm telling you, this guy is bad. It's just, it's just not there. And Alex Jones's broadcast, we've got a lot of archives. Mm. So for someone who is always talking about Epstein, it's kind of unusual that it's never recorded on tape. Mm. So at the time, at the time, the David Icke stuff led into an interesting discussion about about the numerous cases of of um, Jimmy Savile and Bill Cosby, uh, photographer Terry Richardson, rapper R. Kelly, all these people who had reputations, who it was not, there were all the stories about them, and yet it took a very, very long time. Um, and indeed, in the case of Jimmy Savile, took until after his death for anything to actually get done about it. And there's a bit of a question there: Is it is that a conspiracy, the the result of a conspiracy, or is it just sort of what we we might call a polite fiction or something? We you know we have that concept of the polite fiction being a thing that everybody knows is true, but everybody pretends isn't true, or vice versa. To, 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 to get along, to just so society can function nicely. Um, because it seemed quite bizarre. Like things like R. R. Kelly was always the one who got me. I remember back in the 90s, I remember Chris Rock hosting the MTV Music Awards, making jokes about R. Kelly, how, how R. Kelly likes... Uh, there's a specific joke about how they need to keep R. Kelly away from the Olsen twins. And it was, ah, R. Kelly likes them young. And it was like, yes, no, he does. He likes them. He likes them illegally young. Yeah. Why? Why is nothing more? Oh, Kevin Spacey being another one who people, uh, you know, the um, Family Guy notoriously made jokes about Kevin Spacey, um, but nothing actually became of it. it. And for some, like, it, it was just one of those weirdly things about how how you can never actually put your finger on when something goes viral. Exactly why it just seems to happen. But in the Bill Cosby case, you got Hannibal um, Buress. Again, made jokes about him the same way people made jokes about R. Kelly and others. And for some reason, when he made jokes about Bill Cosby being a rapist, uh, it stuck that time and, and investigations actually happened. But it just seemed very weird the way this stuff can go on and on and on. And yet people... I mean, the other thing I talked about at the time was uh, uh, on an episode of Have I Got News For You, Ian Hislop, uh, following the Jimmy Savile's death and all that stuff, there's, there's a clip of him talking about how, yes, the thing is that, yes, everybody had heard, but nobody knew, nobody actually knew that, that, that he was doing all these things. And it seemed a case of, yeah, but, like, 
you're a journalist. Like, investigative journalists exist. Law enforcement exists. Any of them yeah, could have British looked into it. British libel law also makes it very yeah. difficult to broach the question. Mm. Now, the person who told us about this was Will Banyan. Right. There we go. Credit where credit is due. So yeah, so that, I mean, that was our that was our second big example of a person who was right about one thing and used that for uh, as ammunition to bolster their other views. But now it turns out that that actually wasn't the best example no, we could have used. No, so which actually does bring us on to an interesting topic here of people who may have been accidentally right mm. because recently. We talked about Naomi Wolf. We did. Who has turned into quite the character post the pandemic. Post the pandemic, the pandemic's all going on mm. during the pandemic, where in the, the episode we covered her, we covered some of her more interesting tweets mm. uh, on the notion that children have lost the ability to smile due to the pandemic, uh, that Apple is working on time travel technology. I mean, there's a lot of very interesting claims in there. And, and the word lassitude. Oh yes, lassitude. We we use lassitude. Well, I use you lassitude do. a lot for quite mm. some time. And as we kind of covered in our discussion of Naomi Wolf, the book that she's most famous for. Well, actually, I think she actually might be more famous for Outrages now, due to the outrageous claims in Outrages. But the book that she came to prominence for, The Beauty Myth which was taken to be this you know, stunning expose of the way that beauty is being manufactured and then used as a kind of system of control for women over the course of the 20th century. Many people have now gone back and when the kind of scholarship that she's been pinged for now, we're seeing the issues in that scholarship in the original work. And essentially people are going, look, the message of the book was so important that we ended up kind of overlooking the shoddy research that supported it. And unfortunately, this then allowed her to write subsequent books with shoddy research, and the message of those books started to diverge from what we wanted to hear, and that was the point we went, oh, she's not a very good researcher after all. Mm. Now I'm not actually. I, I, I have studied the beauty myth. I studied it back at university in the late 1990s, uh, but I I'm not familiar with her subsequent work apart from her more recent uh, Twitter Twitter catalogue, which um, is probably a novel in itself. Mm, it sure is. So tell me then about her other books. So after the beauty myth, she wrote the end of America, which I think has the subtitle "A Message from an American Patriot." And that deals with the rise of American imperialism post 9-11. So it looks at how America has become this kind of expansionary military force post the September 11th attacks, and how this is leading to tyranny and fascism within the United States. Something which she seems to support now, as opposed to was again back mm. in 2004. 
She wrote a book called Misconceptions about childbirth and motherhood. I actually have not read that one, so I have no actual background for this. She kind of did an updated version of the beauty myth with fire with fire, looking at fem feminism in the 21st century. I wasn't even aware this book was released when I was doing this. This case, oh, there's a another Naomi Wolf book I haven't read. And then there's Outrages, and this is the book that came out two years ago now. It was originally printed in the UK and it deals with Vic the Victorian era and the treatment of homosexuality. And this book came to prominence because Naomi Wolf, this is the result of her PhD work, she did a PhD through Oxford I believe, and the book is based upon her PhD thesis. So she's interviewed on BBC One by Matthew Sweetman, who's a historian, who also happens to be an expert about Doctor Who, but that's another matter entirely. And he questions her about one of the claims in the book, where she talks about how Victorian homosexual men were being executed by the state left, right, and center for sodomy. And her proof for this is, you find all of these people who go through the court for consensual sex with other men, and the judgment is written down as death recorded. And you go, look, they were executed. And Sweetman goes, no, actually, that's not what that means. That was a convenient Victorian term to say, look, technically, the consequence of the crime you've committed is execution. We're not doing that anymore. We're just going to state people with a fine. But we have to follow the letter of the law and write down that you're dead. So it was a it was a way of going, look, we're not performing executions for this crime anymore. It is the consequence of what you've done. So to get around it, we'll just put death recorded. And she went, oh, I wasn't aware of that. And Sweetman was going, I mean, this is a PhD work. Surely someone would have told you this. And she went, oh, it's, it's, it's okay. When the book gets printed in the United States, I'll put in a correction. And then when the book got printed in the United States, she just doubled down and went, well, I, I think it's disputable as to whether that's the right interpretation. And every legal scholar and historian in the UK, apart from apparently the committee which gave her her PhD, was going, there's no dispute or contentiousness about this. this is, we know from the legal text this is what was happening at the time. And that kind of then spoke to her inability to update her theories in the light of evidence, which turned out to be exactly what was happening on Twitter, where she would make outrageous claims. People would then go, actually, I don't think that's right. And she'd just double down and say, no, no, it definitely is right. Definitely is right. Even mm. if I'm wrong, I'm definitely right. Yeah, so possibly another case of a person who was, you know, like you say, she, she, has, she has said some right and true stuff. Um, and... Uh, and yes, the, the the message of the beauty myth, the the overall message of it, I think, I think, is still agreed with and is an important message. Even though some of the work that that got her there um, was not up to scratch, and yet she's gone from that to basically thinking she's right about everything, and and saying stuff. And I think is what you can say. All going on Alex Jones' show. Stuff. 
so is now associating with the heterodox and associating with the worst of the heterodox. Mm. So yes, an interesting example. Now, was there more you wanted to say about Alex Jones? He had, uh, Epstein is not the only thing that he's, like, he, he claims to be right about a lot of stuff. Yeah, and this is once again a plug for the podcast Knowledge Fight. So there is kind of a feeling amongst people who work in the conspiracy theory theory world that Alex Jones today is to put in scare quotes, a crazy person. But Alex Jones in his early career, so late 90s, early 2000s, where he really did seem to be a stepping aside from the left-right paradigm, just being a libertarian, being worried about government encroachment on civil rights, that he was a more sensible person in the early days. And he's just basically swallowed his own pig urine and now has become the person he is today. And as the hosts of Knowledge Fight, Dan and Dan, have pointed out, if you go back to 2004 Alex Jones, which is meant to be kind of the glory days of Alex Jones when he was more sensible, he's doing exactly the same thing. He's less religious then, but he's still making the same types of claims he's making today based upon poor evidence and having neo-Nazis on his show and just ignoring the whole neo-Nazi aspect of what they're saying and pretending they're just being reasonable centrists about things. And so this kind of theory that Alex Jones has got worse is technically true. Alex Jones today is a lot worse than he was back in 2004 because his reach is bigger and he's more explosive when he's on air. But he's not, he hasn't actually started making more outrageous claims than he did in the past. He's always been making these outrageous claims based upon virtually no reading of the source material whatsoever. He's just a bigger name now, so he seems worse, but actually he's, he's no, well, he is worse than he was, but he was pretty bad to start with. Mm. I think that's what I'm trying to that say. Sound, you know, that's, yeah. that sounds about right. Now we did, uh, I don't know if we actually made it clear. The Alex Jones, Naomi Wolf stuff is is was new. Uh, the when we did this episode before, we were mostly talking about Ian Wishart, David Icke, and also local earthquake predictor Ken Ring, who hasn't really done much interesting. And in, um, yeah, he was kind of big in 2011 around the Christchurch earthquakes because he claims that he can use the moon to predict earthquakes. I think, as we pointed out at the time, he has this system whereby he can predict an earthquake within three days of an earthquake occurring, which he takes to be a very amazing success rate. As most geologists in this country will say, there are constant earthquakes in this country all the time. Being able to say you can predict an earthquake within three days isn't really saying much because you can predict an earthquake within three days with no theory whatsoever because there's going to be an earthquake in this country mm. every three days. Mm. Especially so, around Christchurch because it's really, really tectonically unstable. Mm. Yeah, so not, not really much um, else to say about him. We did have um, another new addition here. I see you've added uh, Noam Chomsky, who I think maybe could also, it just occurs to me now, you could possibly lump him in with Richard Dawkins as well, as oh, academics yeah. who, who said some good influential stuff early on, and then and based upon that got quite conspiratorial. Yeah, yeah, so the Chomsky thing has become 
interesting because he's now teaching one of those masterclasses which get advertised on Twitter and mm. Facebook where, you know, the Steve Martin masterclass where he will, he will teach you to be funny, which is an unusual thing because Steve Martin's not very funny these days. Although Only Murders in the Building is pretty good, but his most recent movie work has not mm. been great. He made two of those Pink Panther films. Did he? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I know. Not sure what to do with that. Uh, and so Chomsky is teaching a masterclass on fighting disinformation. And this is weird because Chomsky is an apologist for the Syrian regime, feels that the West is to blame for the invasion of Ukraine, and seems to be someone who swallows quite a lot of disinformation that's coming out from the Kremlin. Mm. And this is kind of one of these things where a lot of people have a high esteem for Chomsky because of his early work, particularly around the notion of institutional analysis, with the idea that, look, sometimes institutions are not designed to conspire, but rather the nature of their large organizational structure or lack of structure means they act in malign ways. And also, he was very influential in 2001 to 2003 with his arguments against American imperialism because of what was going on in Iraq and in the aftermath of 9-11. And so people point to that early work. And look, he was, he was on the money about that stuff, so he's probably on the money about this stuff. But it doesn't seem that Chomsky's very much on the money these days. Mm. It was always weird to me because I... Back in the in the mid late mid to late nineties, I was at university studying philosophy and linguistics, and of course Chomsky was made his name in linguistics before he moved into into the more political sphere. Um, and hearing about here's all these these theories of Chomsky, and then also the other stuff, and then suddenly realizing, oh, it's the same guy. Yeah, that's that's weird. His theories on language acquisition were, were super interesting. I I believe they've been revised a bit these days because pretty much all academic work. It, it's 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 rare for anything in academia to survive several decades. So I believe Chomsky's linguistic theories are still relatively popular amongst American linguists, and not very popular mm. amongst linguists in the rest of the world. Yeah, as I recall, his it was, it was essentially. Um, Actually, it, it, it's irrelevant to anything we're talking about. Now, he had theories about exactly sort of the human human propensity for language and how it develops within Yeah, and humans. the, the and, notion of there yeah. being an actual language unit of mm. the brain, but which anyway. has a basic grammar encoded into it. Mm. And people are going, that's great, but the language sets he used to come up with this theory all share common characteristics. The problem is once you start looking at languages more globally, the universal grammar doesn't apply. Mm. But anyway, this is not a podcast about linguistics. If you want a podcast about linguistics, I would recommend Lingthusiasm, which is a very interesting podcast. That sounds podcast. like a drug. <laughs> is, <laughs> is, is your back feeling sore? We recommend Lingthusiasm. Mm. Ask your doctor if you can get ling lingthusiasm for your spinal pain. But instead, it's actually a very interesting podcast with two, two, pod, two, two linguists who are enthusiastic about linguistics. Are they lingthusiastic? The, they, they are indeed lingthusiastic. I don't, even, I don't even understand how that portmanteau came about. 
Ah, well, it did. So all well, I can I mean, say is apparently, but I think based upon the name alone, I will not be listening. Yeah, well, well, then that that's your loss, quite. Frankly. I don't even know how I'd spell it to search for it in a mm. podcast app. Uh, anyway, anyway, I think the fact that we're getting uh, sidetracked into the the naming of linguistics podcasts actually, suggests so, we might be I at mean, the end of things. Well, no, one thing. So one thing which I've actually always found fascinating about Chomsky as a political philosopher is he's not regarded as being a very good political theorist by political philosophers. He kind of ends up being the political philosopher for non-philosophers. Mm. And it's one of those interesting things where he had a career-defining act in linguistics with the language model universal grammar stuff, which he then kind of leaves behind. So Chomsky doesn't do much linguistics these days at all. He moves on to being a public intellectual and engaging in political philosophy. He's really successful at that. And yet he's not a particularly well-studied person in philosophy. Hmm. I just find that interesting. Yes, he's, yeah, that, that, that um, what do you call it, popular? It's not pop science, because it's... Poplosophy? Here's a new portmanteau <laughs> for you. Quickly, trademark that. It's our new podcast. Poopflosophy? Poplosophy. Poplosophy. No, no, I can't, I can't say it. Oh, uh, well, fine. It'll, it'll just be me then. So, while I go off and write uh, the intro for my new podcast, Poplosophy, uh, we should probably bring this one to an end. We should, but we do have a bonus episode we to record. Do. Um, our bonus episode this week we'll talk a bit about uh, what Trump's up to a bit about what RFK we haven't actually talked much about RFK Jr. in this podcast and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking we need to more at the moment given the sort of stuff he's been up to and um, a bit of a bit of a bit more amateur ripperology which pops up every now and then in the news. Yeah, so apparently Jack, the identity of Jack the Ripper has been discovered again. 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 Mm. I mean, at this stage, all of Victorian London is going to turn out to be Jack yeah. the Ripper now. Mm. It was like the, um, which is the Agatha Christie one? Murder mystery where it turns out everyone did it? Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, that was Express. the Express, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they see the trailer for A Haunting in Venice, the next Kenneth Branagh has a moustache. Agatha Christie adaptation is out. Oh. Yeah. I do like a good bit of moustache work. Yeah, it's, it's based upon one of the lesser regarded Poirot novels, which for some reason now is set in Venice. Hmm. Just because. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Kenneth Branagh's going to do what Kenneth Branagh does. Well, that's always been the case. So it's, if, 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 if there is to be a, mor a moral for this episode, it's A, People have and continue to trade on past instances where they are correct to bolster their current opinions. And B, Kenneth Brenner does what Kenneth Brenner does. Yeah, mm. that's true. So I have no comment on that. No, none, 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 none required. Uh, so with with those morals uh, ringing in your ears, I think it's time to leave you to go about your day. And I'm going to do that by saying goodbye. I'm going to bring back a classic. Lassitude. Ah, memories. Of the way life used to be. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R.X. Denton. Our show's consp... Sorry. Producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider joining our Patreon.
And remember, they're coming to get you, Barbara.